I'm now joined by Phil Huber, Chief Investment Officer at Savant Wealth Management, an approximately $14 billion wealth management firm. Phil is also author of The Allocator's Edge, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments and the Future of Diversification. That came out towards the end of last year. And I'll also note Phil blogs at bipsandpieces.com. That's bpsandpieces.com, which I highly recommend checking out. And Phil is now on the line with me from Chicago. Phil, great having you back on the podcast. Great to be here, Nate. And look at the welcome music with Weezer. How about that? I think I play Weezer like every other week. Just can't help myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't uh, attributable to me. Yeah, no. All right. So, so look, I've got to tell you, uh, I know you won't claim to have a crystal ball, but the timing of the release of your book was uh, impressive. So I'm showing this was released in November of last year. And you think about what's gone on in the markets this year. I mean, you were all over it because the backdrop of the book is that with uh, equity valuations on the higher end and interest rates at historic lows, investors might want to consider some other uh, asset classes and strategies. And and you look this year, that that's certainly played out thus far. So I, I guess to start, what was the background on uh, on writing this book? Why did you pursue this? Sure. I guess in terms of the timing, what's what's he saying? Uh, better lucky than good. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> what's interesting though is I, it was actually supposed to originally come out probably a year earlier, and that was more on me. And that you know, between COVID and, and life, you know, and, and different obligations being in the way, I just had to keep kicking the can down the road and actually getting the book done. So, I ended up it ended up coming out a year beyond initially what was intended. So, a part of me thinks it was a good thing in hindsight because the, the timing worked out well. I think in the sense that there's naturally more interest and demand around alternatives. But on the flip side. Had it come out a year earlier, perhaps there would have been, you know, for advisors or, or professionals who read it, you know, maybe a little bit more time to prepare portfolios ahead of what, what has been a really challenging year to uh, uh, to allocate to traditional uh, asset classes. So, um, to your question, like, what, why write this book? Why, why write a book? I, I think why write a book was just, you know, for me, just having been blogging for a number of years, it was always sort of a bucket list item and a, a great opportunity. Came along to work with Harriman House as, as a publisher and. Um, to give me that platform to, to do that. But in terms of the topic itself, you know, really that, that was born out of just my, my experience uh, in, in the role of CIO for a wealth management firm. You know, my clients are really all the clients of the firm, but, but specifically, you know, our advisors are kind of my clients and that I'm a, a resource to all of them. And so just from, you know, day-to-day conversations and gathering feedback, like what are they struggling with in meetings as it relates to discussions around the portfolio, you know, we had been allocating to a number of alternative asset classes for, for a number of years. And I would say it was a, a material allocation of the portfolio, but still relatively modest, you know, call it 15 to 20% of an average, you know, portfolio. But it was accounting for the vast majority of client questions, maybe frustration, uh, misunderstanding, et cetera. You know, some of it, I think, has to do with the, the backdrop at the time of just a continually rising equity bear market where everything that you, every dollar you don't have in stock seems like it's a, a drag on the on the portfolio, but I think also too, it was a recognition that, you know, at the end of the day, we're you know the advisors are the ones that are, are in the trenches in the field translating these you know inherently somewhat more complex investments to our end clients. Um, and, and while while certainly we we were you know aware that there's an education gap for the individual investor just because they're not accustomed to investing in these sorts of things that fall under the alternatives umbrella. I think even at the professional level and the advisor level, there's there still work to be done to try to get a better understanding as to the, the kind of why, how, and what behind 
uh, investing in alternatives. So that was really the inspiration for the book. And by the way, I should note that the foreword to your book was written by none other than Cliff Asnes. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, they, they say shoot your shot, and uh, Cliff's <laughs> always been you know one of my uh, you know uh, heroes in the investment world. I've always had such a great deal of admiration for the work that he and, and his colleagues at AQR have done, in, in particularly in kind of educating uh, you know folks like myself on the use of alternatives in portfolios. And so I, I kind of think back earlier in my career, a lot of the initial sort of aha moments about expanding beyond stocks and bonds and what that means for portfolio construction really came from learning, you know, through through some of their work. And so I, I couldn't think of anyone better to write the forward if he was willing to do it. And fortunately, he was willing to do it and did, and did a great job. And so I'm, I'm very indebted to, to Cliff for uh, doing that for me. All right. So you may have caught the tail end of my uh, segment with Betify's Laura Krigger, but I was talking about how we did just have the worst start to a year for the S&P 500 since 1970, the worst start to a year ever for broad bonds. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot going on in the markets, right, between the, the Fed and inflation, Russia, Ukraine, we're coming off a once in a generation or more pandemic. So there's a lot of what I would call uh, sort of shorter term factors that play in the markets right now. But in reading your book, and, and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I think my sense is that you do view alts as something that belongs as part of a longer term allocation. I'd love to have you just talk a little bit more about that. I mean, is it as simple as you believe the markets moving forward are going to look different than what we've experienced the past decade plus, or is there more to it than that? I think to me that the reasoning for a strategic allocation to alternatives, and I'll just caveat that with alternatives is a very broad word and it includes a lot of different categories that have very little to do with one another. So it's, it's hard to use the word alternatives very broadly, but we'll stick with it for the purposes of this conversation. But I would say the, 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 the rationale is kind of twofold. One is more sort of uh, market environment driven in the sense that um, the whole first chapter of the book is called Hindsight is 60-40 in that it was really trying to identify what are the, the potential headwinds uh, facing 60-40 type portfolios or traditional stock bond portfolios in the years ahead, and, and we're, we're kind of living through it now. That wasn't because I had any sort of crystal ball that that was going to happen right when the book came out. It was just sort of a recognition that, hey, the, the environment, particularly for the 40, the bond piece, is a lot different today than it was you know, 20 to 30 years ago. And if you look at all the sort of boxes that bonds checked in being a complement to stocks in a diversified portfolio, for a while they checked all those. It was you know, the, the, you know, decent yields, you know, high total returns, or, or I would say decent total returns, you know, diversification kind of when you wanted it, and also just a relatively benign environment for inflation, which we know can wreak havoc on bonds. And so that hadn't risen to the surface, you know, up until recently in, in quite some time. And so it was kind of just identifying all these factors that, I, you know, I, I was not the first person to make note of these, but it was more kind of a, like, boy who cried wolf thing, where I think people have been calling for, like, the death of 6040 for years, and it just kept kept chugging along, and then even the up and you know through 2020, call it the the 10 year re- return for like a 6040 was you know above average relative to history, not just in absolute terms, but in risk adjusted terms. And so it was kind of this, hey, a for 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 all of us who are are kind of prone to look back and rely more on the recent past and extrapolate into the future, you know, the 6040 portfolio became a bit of like a security blanket for allocators, and that was kind of the safe bet. It's like, hey, why mess with a good thing? It's working, but when you just look further ahead, like the math is kind of the math on the bond side. Um, so we know the total returns are going to be much lower than they have been in the past. 
And I think what people probably didn't give as much thought to is this idea that bonds are going to diversify stocks in a down market, and that's not always the case. The correlations between stocks and bonds are not necessarily stable over time, and they're not always that, that sort of negative um, impact where you see price appreciation in bonds when stocks are declining. And so really it was just saying, hey, look, there, there can and will be environments where bonds can't do the heavy lifting that they always have as a sole diversifier to equity risk. The flip side, I mentioned there, there's kind of two parts to the argument for alternatives. So there's the market environment side. There's also just the kind of evolution of, of um, you know, asset class availability in, it, in the sense that as allocators, as financial advisors, we just have a, a larger opportunity set and, and a greater toolkit to build portfolios with. And so, you know, it's kind of just a recognition that there's more things that we can use to, to maybe, you know, uh, fill in where, where bonds are falling short to, to diversify a portfolio. And that, yes, it will take some education and, and, and there's a bit of a learning curve, but I think once you get over that, I think we, we, we've got the tools to give portfolios uh, better odds of uh, success than relying on traditional uh, constructs. And I think a good parallel would be the evolution of indexing. We think about the early days of indexing. It was index mutual funds, and eventually you know, the ETF came along and, and with its you know, different sort of structural improvements, sort of uh, kind of the next generation. And then, of course, the, the big you know, buzzword du jour today is direct indexing or custom indexing by taking all the same attributes of indexing at the fund level and trying to utilize uh, individual securities to you know, get more customization, better tax management. So if we think about asset allocation, I think it'll follow a similar sort of evolution where, okay, at the end of the day, clients do want meaningful returns, but they also want the ability to diversify and manage risk. Um, and we kind of had two levers for that for a while. There have been attempts at improving upon that, things like risk parity, where you're kind of taking the same um, ingredients but using a different recipe to provide greater risk balance. And then you've got things on, on the institutional side, like the endowment model, that have a greater reliance on, on uncorrelated return streams and illiquid investments. And so in terms of what the future portfolio looks like, um, you know, it's hard. it doesn't really have a name yet, but I think it will kind of take, take cues from both risk parity, from you know, dynamic asset allocation from, from the endowment model and try and come up with something that works for individual investors as opposed to institutions by continuing to embrace other sources of return uh, in a portfolio. Okay, so there are several things I honed in on there. Uh, fantastic <laughs> description. No, that, long-winded answer, I know. I'm no, that, that was wonderful. Um, let, let me come back to the potential shortcoming, uh, shortcomings of bonds in, in the 60-40 portfolio. So I saw some tweets a couple of weeks ago from Morningstar's Christine Benz and, and Jeffrey Patak. I, I sent these over to you. And for listeners, basically, uh, Christine and Jeff were discussing alternative funds. And Christine said that, uh, look, in a challenging market environment, uh, all manner of complicated, often expensive gobbledygook, that, that, that's her uh, term, becomes an easier sell. Which, Phil, we can talk about that. I, I agree with that. And then Jeff chimed in with the uh, performance of alternative funds over the past 15 years. And it was pretty ugly, like hardly any alt funds beat a 60-40 portfolio. So, Phil, I'm just curious, I mean, what did you think about that? Does it come down to, again, we're going to have a different market environment moving forward? And so looking back over the past 15 years maybe isn't a fair uh, comparison. What were your thoughts on those tweets? Yeah, I, I think it was a good thread. And, and first and foremost, I'll say I have the utmost respect and, and admiration for both Christine and Jeff. I think they do phenomenal work and uh, really enjoy them both personally. But um, and, and I actually don't disagree with what they said, which might be a little bit surprising in the sense that I think Christine hit the nail on the head is that this is always the case following a, a big 
bear market or a big downturn is that people are starting to look for diversification after they needed it. Um, and that always presents return chasing challenges. So that, I think that's going to always exist, and not even just in the alternatives, but all asset classes. We just tend to, we're just kind of return chasing, you know, uh, 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 beings uh, to a degree. I think Jeff's point about like the survival rate and the success rate of liquid alternatives funds. A couple of points there. Like obviously the data is the data with what he was showing. I would say just because something has alternative in the label, and there's a number of different subcategories that they have at Morningstar in that kind of liquid alts universe. A lot of them have pretty substantial market beta. Um, so to me, it's, it goes beyond just sort of looking at the label, and you really got to go under the hood. And certain categories for us don't, you know, pass the smell test that we don't include in the portfolio because we don't think that they're going to be diversifying uh, or, or truly uncorrelated. Uh, so I think it, again, relative maybe to, to more traditional asset classes, a much deeper degree of, of kind of getting into the, into the nuance and understanding and uh, deeper due diligence as to what you're getting into. Um, at the same time, alternatives are not a silver bullet. They do require uh, really a good understanding of when they might work and when they might not work, and also ha- have a decently long time horizon to allow them to, to bear fruit. And, and, and I caught the tail end of your conversation with Lara um, talking about managed futures, and that's a perfect example where you know we've been allocating to that space for many, many years now. And you know, to be honest, that's probably the one asset class we've had to probably defend the most. And, and then, you know, thankfully, we've gotten clients to really stick with it, you know, uh, but it wasn't easy. And then, of course, it's paying dividends this year is kind of the, really the standout performer in a year that almost everything else is down. And so, again, I think the, there's a, too much of a behavioral aspect of trying to kind of close the barn door after the horses get out when you have a challenging market environment. So, like, the time to get into managed futures, not to say it's necessarily too late today, but would have been like a year ago, not now after – after we see the damage to 6040, after we see, okay, this category is doing really well. So, um, you know, I think, I think uh, you know, again, I, I think the, the initial attempt at liquid alts following the GFC was probably a, a, a failure just because it was, um, it got a lot of product in a very short period of time and a lot of things that probably shouldn't have ever been launched in the first place, a lot of funds that ultimately kind of met their maker. Um, and, and so I think probably some lessons learned along the way, of, of, and you tend to see, you know, kind of a survival of the fittest, not as many firms launching, you know, quote-unquote, like, Me Too products where they just feel like they got to be in, in the alternatives world because that's where all the hot, you know, flows are going. And so I think what you have today is probably a, a higher-quality subset of offerings than maybe the kind of early-mid-2010s. Um, and I think probably some lessons learned from, from allocators on, on just trying not to time these things and understanding better how to set expectations for clients and kind of where to source them from in a portfolio and how to properly frame expectations for clients. And so I don't think we're all the way there yet, but again, that was a big reason for writing the book and trying to get down the path of getting there. Yeah, I think the investor behavior and psychology is a huge component here. I mean, the fact is, alts, and again, we're talking very broadly here to your point, there's a lot that fits under the alternative umbrella, but they can go long periods of time where they don't work. And and to what you were saying, I mean, we saw that following the global financial crisis, where for the most part, alts didn't work for over a decade. And so I do think it can be difficult for investors to stick with them. And then, you know, here recently, we're seeing some of these strategies start to work and you're seeing investors jump in. So I, I think, you know, the best portfolio is the one you can stick with. But if you're going to get the value out of alts over the long term, there is a, a, a big component of investor behavior uh, that, that's required there. Something else, Phil, that I'd love to get your take on. You know, I've always said um, that you, you look at, the alt space. And it, especially when I talk about alternative ETFs, 
they're typically more complex, right? They're just not as straightforward to understand as traditional stocks and bonds. I'm curious, besides uh, telling people to read your book, which I highly recommend, um, how do you think advisors and investors can best approach getting their arms around this space? Because again, the, the other factor here too, and, and you, you alluded to this, is at least for advisors, they can't just add alts to a portfolio and hope they work out. They, they need to intelligently explain these strategies to clients, right? They, they really need to understand what it is that they own and what they're dealing, uh, dealing with. So what tips would you offer to advisors on that? Well, like you said, besides reading the book, which I would certainly encourage, um, I think it's really um, uh, finding, you know, people uh, with, because again, there's so many different categories and alternatives. Um, and so I think there's a lot of really knowledgeable experts out there in, in, in these ones. And so I think whether, whether it be something like Twitter or different email, you know, newsletters or what have you, just kind of, you know, find the right filters, the people that you think, you know, uh, are really kind of experts in these different areas and just try to learn from them, whether that be through, again, like, you know, mediums like Twitter or reading research papers or, or what have you, just really, really go deep and, and, you know, you don't have to go deep on every single subcategory, but like kind of figure out like what are the things that are probably most appealing either from a structural standpoint that, that your clients might be comfortable with, like what, what sorts of vehicles or, or what asset classes. And I think it ultimately boils down to like, who are the clients that you serve um, what are their objectives? What are their kind of limitations as it relates to things like liquidity, et cetera? Um, and then really trying to understand the nuance. So, you know, there's a lot of nuance at the structure level between mutual funds and ETFs and then other sort of unlisted fund structures like interval funds or tender offer funds or, you know, uh, non-traded REITs, et cetera. So a lot of things to understand there for, for folks that are really only accustomed to using mutual funds and ETFs. And then I think at the asset class level, it's like, what are, what, are, what are the objectives that you're trying to fulfill in a portfolio? Is it just generally broader diversification, like uncorrelated return streams? Is it sort of yield-based strategies that are you trying to fill an income void left behind by traditional fixed income? Or are you looking for things that have some degree of direct or indirect inflation sensitivity? Uh, or, or all the above, you know? And then, then that, 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 that kind of omits a... You know, I kind of think of those like the core alternative objectives. There's the other of the spectrum, which is like enhanced returns above and beyond what you get from public market equities. Um, I, I tend to not think of those categories, like venture and private equity, as, as true alternatives. To me, that's just kind of a part of an equity allocation, just with liquidity and a higher risk profile and higher return target. Um, but again, again, the, the, the different categories are going to really be dependent on who the either investor is or who the advisor is and the types of clients they serve and the, the types of challenges they're trying to solve. But I think there's a ton of, I think we just live in such a phenomenal um, environment right now for just amazing free resources on the internet. Uh, there's just so many great, uh, you know, blogs and podcasts and research uh, providers out there that you don't have to pay thousands of dollars for this. There's a lot of it that's just readily available. And so, one, I mean, not not to point back to my book again, but even if you skip reading the book and look in the back, there's an appendix I called the research rabbit hole where I tried to identify for each uh, alternative category just a, a smattering of different podcasts and articles and papers and books. Uh, specific to each of those domains that I would, again, because I can only go so deep at each level in the book, it was kind of like, hey, choose your own adventure. If you want to go deeper in any of the categories that I, um, you know, that I covered in the book, like here, here are some great uh, uh, resources to do that. Phil, just a couple minutes uh, left here. You had mentioned earlier asset class availability, and obviously this is an ETF-focused podcast. I think about 
how ETFs have helped open up access to different uh, alternative strategies. Do you have any specific thoughts on alternative ETFs? Are you a fan, uh, not a fan? A- any uh, any high level thoughts here? I would say, uh, you know, full disclosure with, within our portfolios today, none of the alternatives we use are, are in ETF wrapper. It's either uh, you know mutual funds or uh, interval funds, things like that. I think there's a handful of, of decent quality uh, ETF options out there, uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily the, the right wrapper for uh, most categories. A, um, some alternatives are inherently more illiquid, which doesn't you know you, you've got you can't really have a, a liquidity mismatch between the underlying investment and the wrapper. I think when you think of one of the main uh, benefits of ETFs being its tax efficiency, that doesn't necessarily uh, translate as well to, to strategies that use a lot of you know, leverage or shorting or derivatives as opposed to individual securities um, as well. You don't get that same in-kind uh, redemption mechanism. And then it, lastly is, is capacity. There, there's just some strategies that have inherent capacity constraints, and there's really no way to, to uh, address that in an ETF where you can't you know, hard or soft close a fund. And so I think there's a handful of, of asset classes that, it, you know, ETFs can work well for uh, and others that it can't work well for. Yeah, that last point is the one that stood out to me in reading the book that, you know, you talked about how investors need to be careful they're not getting a watered-down version of some alternative strategy, that while you do have the liquidity and convenience of an ETF wrapper, you might be sacrificing in some uh, other areas. But um, all right. We have a minute left. I'm not, I'm not saving us a lot of time here. We could do a full podcast, you and I, on this topic. But I have to briefly ask you about crypto, which hasn't fared <laughs> so well this year. Uh, it hasn't served as that alternative source of return. It, it hasn't served as an inflation hedge or, or really much of anything. And you, you do touch on this topic in your book. But wh- where does crypto fit within alts, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think just purely based on its sort of you know, immaturity or nascency as an asset class, by that function alone, it's it's an alternative investment. Um, it just hasn't been around a while. There's still a lot we don't know about it. It's, it's hard to take a short time period that we know from the benefit of hindsight what the returns looked like, but you can't really necessarily make, make any broad assumptions on what, what the future is going to look like for crypto. So I think it's still highly speculative. If You know, full disclosure, I invest personally a little bit in crypto. It's not a huge portion of my portfolio. Um, that being said, that the volatility is magnitudes higher than than stocks. And so I think it can be sized very, very, very modestly. A little bit can go a long way. I also don't think there's a one size fits all, you know, uh, allocation recommendation you can make for crypto. I think it, it can work well for some folks that understand the risks and uh, have have a high degree of conviction in the, the potential and, uh, and, and, and potential upside involved. And then other folks that is just, again, it's going to be behaviorally challenging to stick with. You got kind of stomach churning drawdowns. We're going through one right now. And um, again, it just it kind of fits in that speculative bucket. So I would say, from a allocation standpoint, certainly probably carving it where you would otherwise otherwise have like growth equities or, or, or kind of venture type allocation. You, you don't want to think of crypto as kind of your more defensive alternative because it's certainly not, and we've seen increased correlations of stocks there. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's an alternative, but again, it's kind of back to the idea that the word alternative doesn't really mean a ton because uh, crypto has a, certainly a different risk and return profile than something like farmland or, you know, managed futures or, or um, you know, reinsurance or something like that. So, um, you know, so not not a, a damning uh, a look at the asset class. I think there's there's some, you know, optimistic, you know, components to it, but uh, certainly not for everybody. Well, Phil, fantastic perspective this week. Congratulations on the book, which, by the way, where's the best place for listeners to get a copy of your book? Amazon? Yeah, Amazon, that, that's kind of the, the go-to these days for books. Uh, so that's, that's probably your best bet. But yeah, uh, uh, 
was great being on with you. Would love to come back again sometime. And uh, and, and thanks for uh, having me on. No, thank you. Always love uh, connecting. That was Phil Huber, CIO at Savant Wealth Management and author of The Allocator's Edge.